Father, we want to still our minds in this moment to ask Your Spirit to come into our minds and our hearts, to cleanse us of distractions and to prepare our hearts to hear from Your Word. Father, we want to confess that You are holy and righteous and that we need redemption. We need to be cleansed of our sins. We need to be purged of our iniquities. And Father, we praise You that You have made a way possible for that through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You would give us the desire this morning, a sincere burning desire to to know what Your Word has to say and to understand how it should apply to us and to seek to conform our lives to its authority. We know that this can only happen as a result of Your grace and as the result of the moving of Your Spirit in our hearts and in the life of this church. So Father, we pray against schemes of Satan that I know he has and the desire to distort Your Word this morning. He desires to distract our minds. He desires to hinder our hearing of Your Word this morning. But Father, I pray that Your purposes would prevail and Your Spirit would open up our minds and our hearts that we may behold wonderful things out of Your law and that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies and not to selfish gain this morning. We commit these things to You, trusting that You are able and willing to answer them. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the Gospel of Mark. It's in the New Testament. It's the second book of the New Testament. One of the four Gospels and one of the three that are called the Synoptic Gospels. And we are looking at Mark chapter 2 this morning. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we are in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verse 13 through chapter 3 verse 6. And so a little bit longer passage, but this passage is dealing with basically the same idea. And I've titled the message, A Conflict with Pharisees. As you may well know that throughout the ministry of Jesus, He had many conflicts with the religious leaders, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they in the end were the ones that uh, were very active in seeing that He be crucified. But under this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is this conflict between grace and legalism. You will see Jesus representing grace and you will see the Pharisees representing legalism. Now these two words are important not only for understanding this morning's lesson but understanding the distinction between the Christian faith and every other world religion. This idea of grace and legalism. What is grace? In the simplest terms, you could just say that or grace is simply getting something that you don't deserve. So we have many songs that we sing about God's grace. The, the, the most well-known being Amazing Grace. You know, that, that God's amazing grace that it saved a wretch like me. Simply meaning that I was a wretch, I was a sinner... And God saved me. He gave me something that I didn't deserve, which is salvation. And we talk about grace, and we sing about grace, and we talk about God's grace, but often we find it very difficult to apply God's grace in our lives. 
Now, the opposite of grace is legalism. And legalism is simply doing something and getting what you deserve for what you do. So the the concept of, let's say, a a legalistic uh, religion. Islam is a very legalistic religion. So that the Quran teaches that at the end of your life, uh, basically you have these scales. And that if the good outweighs the bad, then God perhaps will let you into heaven. So it's very legalistic in the sense that if you do more good than bad, in the end, you will be okay and you'll go to heaven. Well, that's the opposite of what Christianity teaches, and that we teach that it's through grace you go to heaven. That you can never do enough good to get to heaven, and that God is infinite in His perfection. So you, to get to heaven, would have to be infinite in your perfection. And that you'd have to do no sin. And hopefully, we would all admit this morning that if there's one thing that we have in common... It is the fact that we have all sinned from right here, from David, all the way over here to the Kennedys. Is that we have this common identity, is that we are sinners before God. In fact, the passage that we read this morning from Psalm 51, David says that in sin my mother conceived me. Meaning that before I was born, I was a sinner. And so you have that idea of, does a dog bark because he's a dog, or is he a dog because he barks? Well, he's a dog, and therefore he barks. So we are sinful, and therefore we sin. We're not sinners, and then therefore we are sinful. But the very fact that we were conceived in sin, the very fact that our nature is sinful, we sin. And therefore, the only solution is grace. Not legalism. And that we could never work ourselves in such a way that we would earn salvation. Because we are behind the eight ball when we come out of the womb. And that's why Paul writes, it is by your nature you were children of wrath. And so this morning, Jesus is going to be representing grace. And the Pharisees representing legalism. And these these two concepts are opposite, and and we're going to see them conflicting and butting heads in these passages this morning. And the first passage is Jesus calling Levi, or Matthew. And we're going to see here in verses 13 through 17 that Jesus offers grace to sinners. Not legalism, but Jesus offers grace to sinners. Let's read verses 13 through 17. And Jesus, it says, he went out beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came to call 
The righteous. Not the right. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, what's going on in this passage? The first thing we see is that Jesus calls who many believe, he said here to be Levi, but with understanding of the other Gospels, that this is most likely Matthew. And what is Matthew? He's a tax collector. Now, none of us like the IRS. I don't think that any of us like the IRS. Maybe there are some of you out there that actually enjoy filling out your tax forms at the end of the year and come springtime. But for the most part, we don't enjoy paying taxes. And guess what? The people at this time didn't enjoy paying taxes. And what made this problem worse was that the tax collectors were not known for their honesty. They weren't known for their upstanding character. And they made a living by cheating people, by imposing high taxes. And so they knew what amount that they had to send to Rome. And they knew what amount they had to give. And so what they did was intentionally impose additional taxes so that they could take their cut and then give to Rome what they needed. And they made a lot of money doing this. And everyone knew that. And no one liked them. You remember the story of Zacchaeus. He was a very wealthy man. And he had obtained his wealth by being dishonest. He had obtained his wealth by overtaxing people. And here Levi is no different. He's not a man that is well-liked. He's not a man that is highly respected. In fact, most people of society would view him as an outcast of society. And this can be seen in the fact that the Pharisees asked the question of why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? So this profession of being a tax collector was not a very reputable one. But yet Jesus comes... And who does he call? The tax collector. So think about that for a second. What would be one of the most disrespectable professions in Franklin County or in Lewisburg? So just think about that. Put that in your mind, whatever it is. And if Jesus was coming here, putting together some followers, some disciples that ultimately would change the world. Guess whose house he wouldn't come to? Mine. And he wouldn't go to Everett's house. He wouldn't go to Rex's house or Wayne's house. He would go to that person's house that you're thinking of in your mind right now that has the most disrespectful profession in Franklin County. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, Levi, leave your profession and come and follow me. So obviously Jesus has done what in the opening chapters? He's been identifying himself with God. And obviously when you think about God, you think about perfection, holiness, and righteousness. And so he's going to be calling people. You would think, okay, Jesus, you have these Pharisees here. They've devoted their whole life to understanding your word. You should begin by calling them. And Jesus doesn't do that. He calls the tax collector, Levi, a man who is viewed as unholy and unrighteous in the eyes of the religious leaders. Come and follow me. 
And amazingly, Levi comes and follows Jesus. And we know this call to follow Him is directly tied with what Jesus is preaching and teaching. Being this repentance of sin and believing that Jesus is the Son of God. But He goes further. What does Jesus do? He's reclining at the house of these tax collectors and sinners. Now what is Mark talking about when he talks about sinners? Is he saying that there are a group of people that are sinners and there's a group of people that are not sinners? Obviously we know that's not what he's saying because the Bible clearly teaches that we are all sinners, that we are all born sinners, that we, all of us are sin, none are righteous, no, not one. But what they're talking about here is a group of people that are identified not with the Jewish system, that are identified as unclean because they don't make sacrifices, they don't come to the synagogue, and they live lives as sinners, not under God's law or His Word. doesn't mean that the other people aren't sinners, but these people are clearly identified in their lifestyle as not being those who love God. And all of us can think of people like that we know. Some may be here today. And the Pharisees see Jesus, He's going to their house and He's reclining with them, He's eating with them. These people, the Levi's friends, these other tax collectors, these, these sinners. And the Pharisees are appalled that someone who associates him himself with the authority of God would be doing this. What in the world is Jesus doing? And so they ask His disciples, Why does your Master, your Teacher, who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be the authority from God, who claims to be the Messenger of God, if He's so perfect and holy, why is He associated with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't He know who He's eating with? These people don't observe the law. They don't offer sacrifices. They don't come to the synagogue. They don't honor the Sabbath. These are heathens. The equivalent is they don't come to church. And they're glad they don't come to church. And they don't feel bad about not coming to church. And Jesus is eating with them. And Jesus' statement is so simple yet so profound. He says in verse 17, when Jesus hears of it, He hears of the Pharisees' objections. And He says, Those who have, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The simple statement of Jesus saying, A doctor doesn't go to well people. If you're feeling well and you have any problems, you don't go to the doctor. When you are sick is when you need a doctor. And Jesus is saying, I came for what purpose? To pay the price for the sins of the world. I came to bring sinners who are opposed to God who are separated from God because of their sin, I came to bring them back to God. I came to reconcile the relationship between the Creator and His created. A division that exists because of their sin. They're separated because of their sin. My whole purpose and mission 
is tied up in the fact that God's creation is separated from Him because of their sin. That's why I came. So He says, I came for sinners. I came for these tax collectors. I didn't come for the righteous. So the immediate application of that for me and for you this morning, if you're not a sinner, Jesus did not come for you. And you don't need to be here. You don't need to hear what I'm saying. And you are wasting your time being here. If you're not like a tax collector and a sinner, then you don't need Jesus. Jesus came for sinners. So this morning, if you're thinking about my life is just too dirty, one of the ways that Satan deceives us is is into thinking that there are sins that are beyond God's grace. You know, you don't know, Corey. You don't know what I've done. If you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't be talking to me. You just don't understand. I've been in jail. I've been divorced. I've been on drugs. I've I've cheated on my wife. I'm an alcoholic. Whatever it is. You just don't know, Corey. I know God forgives some of those things, but there are things that God does not forgive. And Jesus' response to you this morning is, Jesus came for you. That there is no sin that is greater than the depths of God's grace. And to think otherwise is a lie from Satan himself. Jesus came for sinners. So if you're thinking this morning, I'm just too sinful. Guess what? You fit the job description. You meet the requirements. Because Jesus says one of the requirements of salvation is that you say, I've got too much sin. That's the whole reason why I came. So the more sin you have to bring before me and to repent of and to confess of, the greater my grace is displayed. So if you are here this morning thinking that there is some sin in your life, that God cannot forgive, know that that does not come from God's Word. That it is a lie from Satan. There is no sin that is greater than the depths of God's grace. Jesus came with grace. He came for tax collectors. He came for prostitutes. He came for drug dealers. He came for drunkards. He came to save us from our sin. And the Pharisees missed that. They weren't evil people. They were well-meaning people desiring to apply the law and desiring purity. And for us, that's such a warning in the church. We desire things. We desire things to be holy and, and to do things exactly according to God's Word. But Jesus, this, this, this passage offers a warning to us. These people, or the Pharisees, were appalled of who Jesus was associating with. We have the gospel message, right? 
we have God's Word. And we say that one of the things we want to be about is sharing the Gospel and teaching the Gospel. Who needs the Gospel? Sinners need the Gospel. Most likely, those who are rebelling against God aren't going to wake up on Sunday morning and say, I think I want to go to Redbud this morning. I just can't wait to hear that sermon. That's not going to happen most of the time. The way it happens is that people who have the Gospel, who know the Gospel, are intentionally taking it to those who don't know it. Think about the people this morning in our community that, and we all know people, that as far as you know, they have never stepped foot inside this building. As far as you know, they've never stepped foot inside of a church. And they wouldn't know a Bible if it hit them on the head. There are people like that within half a mile, a mile, two miles, three miles, four miles, five miles from here. And we all know those people. What would your reaction be if they were here this morning? Would it be similar to that of the Pharisees? What in the world are they doing here? This is church. He's just wearing a t-shirt. Where's his tie at? Why isn't he wearing a coat? He didn't even brush his hair this morning. Smells like he's got alcohol on his breath. The gospel is for people like that. It's for sinners like me and like you and like everyone else. And it's easy because we are prone not to be distributors of grace, but we are prone to be distributors of legalism. So it's easy for us to put Christianity into our box. Say, if you want to be a Christian, you need to look like this. You need to dress like this. You need to talk like this. And you need to walk like this. And you need to get all those things straight before you come to Christ. And that's the opposite of the way things are. Those things will take care of themselves. You're not supposed to get your life in order and then come to Christ. You fall before Christ repenting of sins. And God and the Spirit and His Word are sufficient to see that sanctification takes place. So, Jesus offers grace to sinners. The next thing that we see in verse 18 through 22 says that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came to came and said to Him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from him. 
the new from the old, and worse and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine, old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now what in the world is going on in this passage? In this passage we see that following Jesus celebrates grace and opposes legalism. Following Jesus celebrates grace and opposes legalism. What happened here? John the Baptist had followers. And these followers and the Pharisees, they had very specific things that they would do to show that they were pleasing to God, to show that they were spiritually mature. And the specific thing that they're talking about now is that they would fast. They would fast as a way of showing that they are righteous people, that we love God. See, don't question our devotion to God because we're fasting. And the fact that we're fasting shows that we are indeed devoted to God. And how does Jesus respond to this question when people ask? Now here we have these different religious movements. We have John's followers, they fast. We have the Pharisees, they fast. And then we have Jesus' followers over here. They're not fasting. They're over there eating with the tax collectors and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners. Which one's not like the other one? They're saying, what's up, Jesus? Your movement doesn't seem to be fitting into the religious norms. Now, if you want to have a a movement here, you need to understand there are some things that you need to do. The first one is you need to set aside one day in the week or one day in the month to where your disciples fast. And what that will do, that will help legitimize your movement. It will help people see that, that you seriously do love God and that this is a sincere movement. And Jesus says, okay, you're right, I think we'll do Friday. Fridays will be our day of fasting. That's not what Jesus said. What does He say? He simply asked the question, Can the wedding guests fast while the broom bride is with them? Drawing on this imagery that is in the other Gospels and in the book of Revelation where Christ is seen as the bridegroom. And the church is the bride. And there's this great wedding feast that takes place when Jesus returns. And He's simply saying that that the bridegroom is here. The Messiah is here. The representative from God's kingdom is here. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for for celebrating the fact that the Son of God has come into the world to restore things as they should be, to take away the sins of God's people. This isn't a time to, to, to pity around. It's a time to celebrate. So he's saying as long as the bridegroom is here, they are to celebrate. And then he specifically addresses what they're trying to do. They're trying to take what Jesus is saying and apply it to their understanding of religion. And he says, that's not going to work. I'm not like John's followers. I'm not just some other religious movement. This is something completely different. So he uses this illustration of, let's say you have a, a patch on your clothes, I mean, a hole in your clothes, and you take the patch, you put the patch on, and you sew it up. But what happens? If you do that before you wash the patch, and the patch shrinks, where you stitch it up, stretches. In West Africa, we would, uh, the people, they didn't have like stores, you go and buy clothes, you would go and buy uh, material. And then you take it to a tailor, and the tailor would make your clothes. Well, you had to wash the material first before the tailor stitched it all up. 
Because if you didn't, like I did a couple times, you would take in this nice new cloth and he would stitch it all together and make these beautiful designs on it and then you would go and wash it and the cloth shrinks and going from a beautiful shirt, it would go to a shirt that you couldn't use anything for but a rag. And you've wasted the cloth because you, it has shrunk and it has torn and it is useless now. So he's saying, don't try to take what I'm saying and what I'm doing and patch it on to whatever else you're doing. This is something completely new and different. And so thinking about the significance of that for my life and for your life and for the life of this church, what many of us are tempted to do and we do without knowing often is that we try to take Jesus and patch Him onto our life. You say, well... I'm having marital problems. So I think I'll go to Jesus and He can help me with my marriage. And so we try to take a little bit of what Jesus is saying and kind of stick it, make a little patch where we have a hole in our life. Everything else about my life is fine. I just need a little help with my marriage or I need a little help with my finances or I need a little help with getting better. We have some sick family members. And so I want to take a little bit of aspect of what Jesus is teaching and just sew it on to my life. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Being a follower of mine means that you are completely committing your life to me. Don't try to fit me into some schemes or systems or ideas that you have. He's saying, I'm the Son of God. I'm the messenger of the kingdom of God. I have all authority has been given to me over sickness, over sins, over the Sabbath. I speak for God, not about God. So if you want to be my follower, it requires your whole life. This is a completely new way of living. Don't try to take aspects of me and fit it into what you think it should be. Then the final thing we see is concerning the Sabbath. In these passages here, verses 23 through verse 6 of chapter 6, for the sake of time, we won't read it all, but what's going on here is that Jesus comes and His disciples are walking along in verse 23. They're, They're plucking heads of grain And the Pharisees come to him and say, Why are you doing what is not lawful? You're breaking the Sabbath law. You're supposed to be the Son of God. And we have these laws that keep the Sabbath holy, and you're breaking them. And keeping the Sabbath holy is one of the Ten Commandments. So it's something we should do. But the Pharisees, in trying to apply that, they come up with all these rules and regulations of this is what you do and this is what you don't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus references them to something that David did. Saying that David went in and he ate things, the bread, the presents that he wasn't supposed to eat. And then notice in verse 27, he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then later in this passage, in verses 1-6, through we see that this withered man is in the synagogue. This man with a withered hand. 
And Jesus, knowing the Pharisees are looking at him and, and wondering, what is Jesus going to do? We know that he's already been plucking grain and breaking that Sabbath law. Is he going to, is he going to work too? And Jesus, knowing that they are looking and seeing what he's going to do, he's, he calls the man forth and he heals him. He says, I'm going to heal you. And he does heal him. And the Pharisees' response is to begin questioning why he has broken the Sabbath. And Jesus' response in all of this is two things. One, he's saying, man was not made for the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made for man. Meaning that the point of the Sabbath is not coming up with rules and regulations of this is what you do and this is what you don't do. That's not what this passage is teaching. What it is teaching is remembering what the point of the Sabbath is. It's given to man as an opportunity to reflect upon God's Word to renew his heart and his soul spiritually and to be reminded of the eternal rest that will come when Christ returns. And so at the end of all this, you see in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. So the Pharisees, notice the irony here. The Pharisees condemned Jesus for being hungry and taking food on the Sabbath. And they condemned Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. Because Jesus asked them the question, is it better to do good or to do evil? Is it better to give life or to kill someone on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees are condemning Jesus for eating and they're condemning Him for working by speaking a word and healing someone. And in irony, the Pharisees began working with others to plot the death and the crucifixion of Christ on the Sabbath. Doing exactly what they condemned Jesus for doing. They were interested in the legalistic requirements of the Sabbath. Jesus was interested in the grace of the Sabbath. Grace that God gives us this day to reflect upon His Word, to be renewed to Him, to do good. Not to come up with lists of do's and don'ts that give the perception of religious commitment and devotion. So in this conflict, in in these passages between Jesus and the Pharisees, you see the conflict between grace and legalism. We are to be bearers of grace. So as we think about our own hearts, are we embracing the grace of God that He gives to us through Christ? We're not saved because we come to church. We're not saved because... You say a prayer. You're not saved because you do anything. We have salvation by trusting in what Christ has done. And do we offer that same grace to others? Or are we more like the Pharisees in which we try to come up with extra biblical rules and requirements that we expect people to meet before they can come to Christ. 
May the Lord grant His Spirit of grace to our hearts. That we would be as gracious to one another in this room and to those that are not here today. That we would call tax collectors and sinners. That we would be as gracious to each other and to those as God has been to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.